Today's reading is taken from Psalm 145, which is on page 508 in the Church Bible. Psalm 145. <clears throat> I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name for ever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name for ever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commands your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyful sin of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion. He has compassion on all He has made. All Your works praise You, Lord. Your faithful people extol You. They tell the glory of Your kingdom and speak of Your might, so that all people may know of Your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of Your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and Your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all He promises, and faithful in all He does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and faithful in all He does. The Lord is near all who call on Him. To all who call on Him in truth, He fulfills the desires of those who fear Him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise His holy name, for ever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Now I think we're okay.、Uh, let's pray.、Uh, Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from Your Word. Soften our hearts that we might receive that Word. Transform our wills that we might be doers of Your Word. Loose our tongues that we might proclaim Your Word. And we pray this for the glory of Your Son, Your Living Word, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well,、uh, Augustine was a famous Christian theologian of the fourth century, and by his own confession, his life had been a life of sin. He tells of the, his growth to manhood and of how he was inflamed. He says with desire for an overwhelming abundance of hell's pleasures. He ran through youth wild with lust that was manifold and rank. This is what he said himself. He said he was foul to the core. And yet he was pleased with his own condition. He cared for nothing but to love and to be loved. But the love he sought was not true love, but it was what he called the murk of lust. 
However, Augustine had a godly and prayerful mother. Uh, she pleaded with God for her son. And before God, she gave no rest to her sighs and her tears for her son. And God was at work. And he turned Augustine to the scriptures. And uh, through the scriptures, he turned Augustine to God. And Augustine said he felt one day his heart flooded with light. He turned from his life of sin and he turned to God. And later he wrote his story in a book called The Confessions. And in the very first paragraph of his confessions, he writes one of his most famous sentences. Some of you may even know it, but not know where it comes from. He reflects upon humanity and he finds in humans a creaturely instinct to praise. And he speaks of humans who can't be content until they can praise the one who created them. And this is what spurred him to go on in life. Humans cannot but praise, he says, because you made us for yourselves and our hearts find no peace until they find their rest in you. Friends, this wonderful thought is found at the end of the very first paragraph of his confessions. But I want to tell you what is found at the beginning of the first paragraph. At the beginning of the first paragraph, Augustine starts with these words. Can any praise be worthy of the Lord's majesty? Friends, that, that, those words are a paraphrase of Psalm 145, verse 3. You see, Augustine knew where to go when you wanted to talk about God. If you want to talk about God, he knew Psalm 145 is the place to go. He knew where to go when you want to find words to praise God. He knew the place to turn to when you want to exalt in God in whom he had found his rescue, his contentment and his peace. He knew that the place to go was Psalm 145. And Augustine stands in good shoes. The Jewish manual for synagogue worship says this about Psalm 145. It says... Whoever repeats it three times a day may be sure that he's a child of the world to come. Psalm 145 is a great psalm. Jews recite Psalm 145 at a special prayer service held on the Day of Atonement. In the Jewish faith, there is no psalm that is better known or more frequently recited than Psalm 145. In his commentary on the Psalms, John Calvin, the great reformer, says that the description of God given in, psalm, in verse 8 of Psalm 145 is as clear and as satisfactory as can be found anywhere in the Bible. Friends, this psalm that we're going to look at today is a wonderful treasure. It is a gem among gems in Scripture. It is an amazing presentation of God. It is something very, very special. And if you hear and take on board the message of Psalm 145, then you too may may be at the door of being a child of the world to come. It's a great one. So come with me. Let's explore this psalm together. Have your Bibles open and have a look at it. Let me start by giving you a picture of this psalm, a big picture. Let me show you some of the markers that demonstrate how special it is. First, notice the heading of this psalm. If you look through the book of Psalms, you'll find many Psalms that have headings. But this last, this is the very last one in the book of Psalms that has a heading. So it's a special Psalm. Second, notice the very first word in the heading. The heading simply says, praise. 
This word is only used once in a heading of a psalm anywhere in the whole of the book of Psalms. And this is it. So the word praise here marks out this psalm as special again. Third, I want you to notice who is said to be the author of this psalm. The heading says it's a psalm of David. Now, there are lots of psalms of David in the book of Psalms. This is the last one. So this is the very last thing that David wants to say in the book of Psalms. This is his last word. In Australia, we'd call it his swan song, the very last thing to say. This is the last thing that is recorded in his sayings of this very long book. That makes it very special again. But there's even more. Let me show you the fourth special thing about this particular psalm. This psalm is what's called by theologians an acrostic psalm. In other words, in the original language, every verse starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order. Okay, so you start with A and you work through your equivalent in Hebrew to Z. Okay, and every verse starts with the next one. So you work your way down. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. You'll notice there's only 21 verses in this psalm. In other words, there's one letter in, this alpha, in the alphabet that's missing. Now, it's possible that it's been caused by someone just dropping it out. However, I think it was there deliberately dropped out. I think that it's been deliberately dropped by the author to tell you to watch out for something. You see, imagine you're going through the alphabet. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and all the way. And suddenly you drop out one. What are you going to do if you're reading through it like that? Verse 1, A, verse 2, B, and all the way down, and suddenly you get to the missing verse, and you think, what on earth is he doing? Why has he missed out that letter in the alphabet? And I think that's what you do here. And when you read through it, do you know the letter that's missing? It's the equivalent of our letter N. Now, if you, in Hebrew, stop at that letter, and you read the letters backwards that come before it, they spell out They've got three letters, M, L, K. And do you know what those letters mean in Hebrew? Hebrew is a tri-consonantal language. That is, all its words are made up, or its main words are made up of three letters. Do you know what those letters are? M, L, K. Do you know what they spell? They spell king or kingly reign. That's what this is about. I think they're saying God is king. Look at verses 11 to 13. Look at them with me. And what do they say? They, they speak about God the king, don't they? They're about God the king and his kingdom. Can you see what I'm saying? This is a very, very special psalm. It's wonderfully crafted by David to get, give us a A to Z of God the king. An A to Z of God the king. And right in the middle, you're told about who God the king is. So this is very good. The entire alphabet... The source of all words is pulled together to praise God the King. It calls on us to respond by praising God with all we've got. Friends, this is much, there's much more special things about this psalm than I could tell you about today. But that's just a few of them. No wonder Christians like Augustine and Calvin rejoice and Jews rejoice in it. They think this, is, this, this psalm is just something else. So there's the special character of it. Next thing I want to do is remind you of the context of this psalm. I've been explaining on the day we had away yesterday that in many ways the book of Psalms is also about the God the King. 
It's about God's appointment of his Christ, his Messiah, about David and his descendants of human kings. But the book of Psalms also tells you how God punishes the kings of Israel and Israel itself for their disobedience. And that's the context of this psalm. And the message of this psalm is clear. The kings of Israel may fail. Human kings may fail. But do you know the king who will never fail? God, the king, will never fail. God, the king, is a true king. But that's not all there is to say about this psalm. Now, you see, the kings of Israel don't stand alone, do they? The kings of Israel are humans. Why do the kings of Israel fail? Well, because Adam failed before them, and they're just like Adam. They fail as well. In Genesis 1 and 2, God gave humanity as a whole kingly rule. He made them rulers over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, uh, over every creature that moves upon the surface of the earth. And they too failed to live under God's kingly rule. This larger story forms the context of this psalm. And the message of this psalm is very clear. Kings of Israel may fail. Humans may fail. But there's a king who will never fail. And that is God the king. With that in mind, now let's look very quickly at the detail of this psalm. Look at verses 1 and 2. They're a sort of prelude, an introduction. And David commits himself to praise. Look at what he says. And my version is slightly different from yours. I will extol my God, the King. Bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Friends, praise is not something you just do on Sundays when you sing a few songs together. It's not a one-hour event that occurs once a week. No, praise is to be an attitude of life. It's meant, to it's meant to inform and shape our lives. We were made for praise of God. And praise is not something you just say and forget. Praise is by nature somewhat fading away. It, it, it's something you need to repeat and repeat and repeat. Sometimes you use new and different words to do it. Sometimes you use the same words over and over again. We were made, though, for this. We were made for praise. Friends, I think in contemporary humanity, there is a deep focus on who? Us. Me. We all tend to be very focused on me. Our brains think of ourselves continually, don't they? We are preoccupied with ourselves. And praise is a great antidote for this problem. You see, our praise turns away from ourselves, doesn't it? And it turns to God and to his greatness and unsearchable greatness. It focuses on the fact that we are creatures and he is the creator the giver of life. Praise liberates us from the bondage of self. It frees us up and drives us out of our own selves. For in praise, what do we do? We simply stand in awe of God. Friends, those of us who bear the name of Christ must, in my view, return to this discipline of praise. We need to be rebuked by the psalmist. God has made us for him. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12, we were made to live for the praise of his glory. That's what God made us for. 
As Peter says in 1 Peter 2, we were chosen by God that we might do what? Proclaim the great deeds of him who's brought us out of darkness into his marvellous light. Our vocation as humans is the adoration and service of God the Father. It's mediated to us through the Son and it has a focus on the great works he has done in Jesus Christ. And it's prompted by and infused by God's spirit. Friends, we are to be people of praise. Let's join with David as God's redeemed Christian people. And we can say with him, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Let's turn now to three to six. In these verses, David gives a reason for his praise. And look at the reasons he gives. They're the great greatness of God's abundant goodness. Look at verses 3 to 7. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall lord your works to another, declare your mighty acts of the glorious splendor of your majesty, your wondrous works I will meditate. The might of your awesome deeds shall be proclaimed. I'll declare your greatness. They will celebrate the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing your praise. Can you hear it? Friends, this is just, I have nothing more to do than praise God. Do you, do you see the things that praise, they praise God for? Verse 3, his greatness, that's carried through till verse 6. Then he turns to God's goodness. Verse 7 celebrates his abundant goodness. Verse 9 proclaims he's good to all. The psalmist has captured those two facets of God's character. God is good. And God is abundant in his goodness. Friends, one of the great risks of God's people is, I think, uh, we separate two great truths. Can I explain this just for a moment? Uh, we often emphasize that God is great, don't we? He can do what he likes, when he likes, how he likes, where he likes, because he's God. The risk with that is you can, God can seem capricious. It, it, he might do things that are not what you want. So that needs to be matched with another statement about God. God is good. God is both things. He can do anything, but he will only do good. He is great in his greatness and abundant in his goodness. You see, if we have a God who's great, but not good, he could do great things in the world, but not good things in the world. That would be terrible, wouldn't it? But what imagine, imagine if you had a God, the alternative, who was good, but not great. Well, he wouldn't be able to do anything, would he? He'd like to help us, he'd like to be good to us, but he can't because he's not great. But this psalm is clear, God is good and great. He is both good and great. And we who are Christians know this to be true. For when we were faced with an impossible situation, when we were faced with our nature to sin, when we were faced with the fact that our sin separated us from God, what did God do? That, strictly speaking, God could not have us in his presence because of our sinfulness. What did God do? Well, he was both good and great. 
in his son, he forged the impossible. He was holy and righteous and punished sin. He was good. Yet he was abundant in goodness and love. He sent his son and brought us to himself. This is our God. His greatness is unsearchable. His goodness is abundant. So let's proclaim the great deeds of Jesus Christ. Celebrate the fame of his abundant goodness and sing aloud of his righteousness. Friends, this is the sort of God our God is. And the writer of this psalm, he bursts into song about it. He says, all your works will give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your faithful will bless you. They'll speak of the glory of your kingdom, tell of your power, make known to all people your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom's an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. These first 13 verses have declared the great truths of this psalm. God is a great king. His kingdom is backed by goodness and endorsed by goodness. And in the second half, David reflects on this inaction. I want you to listen to these words and I want them to just wash over you. Just stop for a moment. And in fact, we might turn them off the screen just for a moment if they're there. I want you to listen to them and soak them in. The Lord upholds those who have fallen, who are falling. And he raises up those who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, satisfying the desire of every living thing. The Lord is just in all his ways, kind in all his doings. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He fulfills the desire of all who fear him. He hears their cry and he saves them. The Lord watches over them over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Now, as you listened, did you notice the way David develops his thought? Did you see it? Did you notice his shift toward the end? David has gradually fixed, moved the focus forward in terms to our response to God. And do you know what our response to God can be? It can be one of two options. We can line ourselves up with him. If so, we will continue to experience his goodness and love. He will watch over those who love him. But if we continue to live independently and autonomously, then we'll be barred from his goodness. He will act in such a way as to give us what we want. You see, if we say to God, I don't want what you want, do you know what God will eventually do, though he is good? He will say, if you want absence from me, I will give it to you. Our, it's the only negative note in the whole of this psalm. Our autonomy will cause us our ruin and his greatness will cause him to destroy the wicked. So there's the detail of this psalm. I wonder if you can hear the central message. The central message is God is king. He is a good king. 
He is generous and benevolent. He is an, also an able king. But can you hear the subtext of the psalm? The subtext is we were made to depend upon this good and kind king. God is our creator. He made us for him and to depend upon him. He made us to look to him, to call upon him, to fear him, to love him. And where such an attitude exists, he will be found to be the God of, did you notice the words, the open hand? Isn't that a great picture? It's as though God walks into his world to the individuals of his world and he says, look at my hands. They are full of good things. They are full of good things. Friends, God is our creator. He is a good and great God. And he made us to turn to him of the open hand, to call upon him, to fear him, and to love him. And where such an attitude exists, he'll be found to be that, the God of the open hand. He will raise up the fallen. He will give them their, due food, their food in due season. He will satisfy their desire. He will do kindness. He will be near. He will hear their cry. He will watch over them, and he will save them. He is God the King. We were made to depend upon him. Now, I wonder if I, you could do some uh, imagination with me. Come in your imaginations. I want you to imagine uh, this psalm. Well, we know what the psalm's been about. It's been about God the King. I wonder, what do you think his throne might look like? What do you think the throne of God, the good and great King, might look like? What adornment might it have on it? Where would it be put? Well, you know what? The New Testament tells us. It gives us a glimpse of God's throne. Just a little bit. In John's Gospel, Jesus uses the language of being lifted up. And to be lifted up has a double reference. Lifted up to God his Father, but lifted up where? On the throne. Do you know an ancient cross? On an ancient cross, there you hang, hung the victim. And do you know what, you, what a cross looked like further down? There was a little bit of wood upon which your buttocks could sit. Why? So that you could extend your life a bit longer. You could rest for a little while to stop the weight. That was Christ's throne. Why? Because there he ruled as God the King. The God of the open hand who offers forgiveness. The cross is where God in Christ exercised the sort of kingship Psalm 145 speaks about. On the cross, God raises up the fallen, doesn't he? On the cross, God does kindness. God opens his hand full of goodness and satisfies our greatest desire. He hears our cry. He saves us. In Jesus, we see God the King at work, great in greatness, abundant in goodness, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So what does it mean to live under the great truths of this psalm? What impact will its message have on us? Well, let me pose this by asking a series of questions. First question is this. 
If you believe the message of this psalm, then what will you say? Well, this psalm tells us the answer to this. If you believe that God is good and a great king, you will tell of this to the world, won't you? You will proclaim his abundant goodness and his great greatness. Look at David's words, verse 21. My mouth will speak of the praise of the Lord and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. If you flip over to Psalm 146, it's full of praise. So is Psalm 147. So is Psalm 148, 149, 150. They're all just praise. If God is really this king he is here in Psalm 145, you can spend the rest of Psalms just praising him, which is what they do. It is, it is praise. But what will you pray if you know the truth of this psalm? What will you pray? That's my next question. If God is this sort of king that we've seen here, if he's the sort of king we've seen in Jesus, what will we pray? Well, we'll pray the sorts of things that this psalm urges us to pray. We'll exalt in God the generous and benevolent king, We'll pray that his kingly rule will be exalted and his reign will be acknowledged. We'll yearn for his will to be done in his world. We'll request him to be generous and kind. We'll ask him to satisfy our needs. We'll particularly ask him to satisfy our greatest need, the need of forgiveness. Knowing that only good is found in him, we'll ask him to rescue us from wickedness and evil. In other words, you know how we'll pray? Listen to this and think of Jesus, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? That Jesus seems to base his prayer even on Psalm 145. That is, that's our second question. How will you pray in the light of Psalm 145? Will you pray just like the Lord Jesus taught us to pray? Third question, how will you live? Friends, our nature and our culture promotes autonomy. It promotes self-sufficiency. It endorses human kingdoms and human reigns. But this, this psalm heads in an entirely different direction. If you want to sing and read Psalm 145, you, do, you confess your own insufficiency and the sufficiency of God. It promotes the sovereignty of God and the end of human independence. It says, come, come and live dependently upon this king. Friends, will you live like this? Will you abandon autonomy and cling to this king? Will you trust in his goodness displayed on the cross? Will you exalt in his son? Will you live a life of praise to him? This is the life God ordained for you. It's what he created you for that you might live for the praise and glory of him and his son and independence upon him, that your life might speak of the praise of this God 
and that all flesh might bless his name forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please help us to live a life of praise of you. Thank you that this is what you created us for and please help us to do this, that our lives might speak of the praise of you and that we might bless your holy name forever and ever. Amen.